These are Grindstaff publishing audio files. Room to Rome, Chapter 14, Spain The sun was shining and the sky was blue as I walked past the many palm trees which lined the harbor and along the walkway making my way into Barcelona. At first, there were a few people around. It was early morning after all, but as I walked further away from the harbor, the amount of people increased until I turned at the Christopher Columbus Pillar and found myself immersed in a huge group of people walking along the main tourist street within the heart of the city, known as La Rambla. A cacophony of accents, laughter, and shouting hit me head-on as I made my way past the talented street performers. With a lack of sleep from the night previous, my senses and tolerance was frayed and before long I ducked into a fast food restaurant for black coffee and Wi-Fi in order to get my bearings. Sitting at a window seat overlooking La Rambla, I watched as a stream of people flowed steadily along, everyone smiling and looking jovial in the morning beauty of the artistic city. With many hours left until I could check into my hostel, I did my usual wandering by turning down random alleyways in search of interesting architecture and landmarks. Soon I found myself in a medieval-looking area and came across a free walking tour of the city, getting ready to begin. I asked if I could join, they obliged, and we were off. The guy was a native Spaniard from the region of Catalan, of which Barcelona is at its center. With a neatly trimmed beard and thick-rimmed glasses, he could have fit in perfectly back home in the Pacific Northwest. Knowledgeable and full of interesting facts, the guide told stories, made us laugh, picked up the Americans from the crowd to banter with, and led us to the many historical landmarks across the city. The three-hour tour ended down near the Arc de Triomphe and the Parc de la Citadella. A few of us asked him what he recommended we must see on our varying times of staying in the city. He was nice enough to make us each a personal list. We tipped him well for his troubles, and the group split in our different directions. It was nearing the check-in time for my hostel, so I walked along the palm tree-lined walkway, through the Arc de Triomphe, and on through residential areas and buildings adorned little pieces of artistic flair, of which I was to grow accustomed in the expressive city. The area down along the tourist district was clean and gleam with an affluence, but as I neared my hostel, the area descended into sketchiness. The hostel looked more like a hotel than those previous, but I was glad since there would be an actual bed to lay my head as opposed to the reclining chairs I had used on the ferry. Only accepting cash at the lobby, I reached into my pocket for the fresh 50 euro note I had just withdrawn but couldn't find. A cold sweat came over me. I apologized to the front desk who was completely apathetic to my plight and scampered out frantically to retrace my steps. After half an hour of frantically searching, I gave up. Defeated from the hit my budgeted bank account would take, found a different graffiti-laden ATM and went back to pay for the hostel. Anger and frustration filled me. How could I have simply lost that much money in such a short amount of time? I made it to my room, which was dark and cramped, with a young lady passed out, hair askew and snoring, atop one of the bunk beds. Throwing my pack on a bed, I pulled out what I needed and stuffed the rest into a small locker. In no time, I was back on the streets, wanting to walk off my frustration. I made it back to the downtown area and walked through the streets as night began to set in, admiring the numerous murals painted on the walls, enjoying the architecture, eating some cheap food, then walking along a harbor with sailboats bobbing up and down. An English cinema was nearby, and I caught a show, then emerged afterwards in complete darkness. I had underestimated how sketchy the area my hostel resided actually was. As I walked back, I kicked myself for not doing enough research, but made it back. It turned out the hostel drew in quite a few young people, 
as in barely drinking age people, and was big into partying. I found the kitchen area, opened the bottle of wine I had bought from the market across the street, and wrote until late. The next morning I settled into a small cafe and drank a latte while reading a newspaper. I took Spanish in junior high and high school, but never had a chance to use it in everyday life. The next two weeks of being in Spain, I told myself I would get better at it. Once I left the cafe, I noticed how hot it was and wanted to buy some sandals. I found a Chinese market and bought some cheap flip-flops and headed to the white sandy beach on the edge of the city. I had done little research on Barcelona before I arrived and was astonished at the beach scene it had to offer. The water was dark blue and the sand warm in the mid-afternoon sun. Taking off my sandals, I walked eagerly through the crunching sand, looking around at the tan bodies of those around me, contrasting sharply with that of my pale white skin. I sat in the sand at the edge of the washing surf, watching people splashing around having fun. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw a mid-thirties woman stand up and take off her bikini top and walk out into the water. I was stunned. It wasn't that I was opposed to being in the presence of a naked body, it was just, I wasn't expecting it. A couple more women did the same, and I accepted that I had found my first topless beach. After an hour or so of relaxing on the sand, jotting in my notebook, I decided it was time to get high. On the walking tour, my guide told us of a castle not too far from the city center, called Munjik Castle, which offered great views of the city. It was a bit of a walk, but I didn't mind. At that point in the journey, I was used to walking for 10 hours a day, plus the architecture of Barcelona offered so many interesting sightseeing opportunities. I walked along the boardwalk past smiling faces and rollerbladers, through the streets passing musicians of varying genres and skill, walked through an anarchist bookstore with an old man reading about Che behind the counter, and found myself walking the perimeter of Manjuic Castle overlooking the city center on one side and the ocean on the other. From the castle walls, I noticed a building resembling a kind of arena and decided to explore. The path down from the castle was beautiful, wandering through trees native to the arid area, cacti of which I had never seen, an outdoor restaurant with people laughing and music playing, and finally the entrance to the stadium I had seen from up high, which turned to be the Estadi Olympic, the site of the 1992 Summer Olympic Games. Without any kind of security or tolls to be seen, I walked underneath the Olympic rings and stood at the top of the large stadium. It felt similar to the Winter Olympic Stadium in Norway, grand and empty, a sign of a bygone event. After the Olympic Stadium, I blindly followed trails and paths, hoping they would lead me back to the downtown area I had grown accustomed. Instead, I emerged from the trees with an elegant building in front of me, the Musée National d'Art de Catalunya. Walking around the edge of the grand building, the view opened itself, and as I stood in front of the museum, my mouth dropped. Below me was a magnificent kind of pedestrian drive which led down to a stadium surrounded by bustling people and vehicles. Ornate fountains and Greek-inspired white columns gave way to a busy road splitting through Venice-inspired red brick pillars and ending with a large fountain in the middle of a traffic circle. Barcelona couldn't help but astound with beauty. The following day I started out with the intention of exploring the city by chasing the architecture of the famed Catalonian designer Antoni Gaudi. During the walking tour on my first day in the city, our guide praised the modernist design work of the architect who I had never heard of before. I looked into taking a guided tour, but it was quite expensive, and since Gaudi designed the buildings to be beautiful on the inside as well as the outside, I figured I could do it myself. Armed with a map circled with many different locations, I set out in the cloudy morning in search of beauty and art, two things Barcelona had covered. Trekking back to the area surrounding the Arc de Triomphe, I began my Gaudi tour with the Cascada Fountain. As the name implies, it is a fountain, surrounded by palm trees ornamented with a gold chariot on top, beautiful white marble at its body, and a large fountain at the base. The area surrounding it was full of people enjoying life and basking in the sun which had begun peeking out from behind the gray clouds. Next was Gaudi's most famous work, 
La Sagrada Familia, the seemingly melting behemoth which had been under constant construction since the late 19th century. It wasn't hard to understand why it was his most famous work. The details were exquisite, with its sharp depictions of religious scenes, honeycomb towers stretching toward the sky, and too many intricate additions which could take many days to analyze. It is truly a living work of art, grand in its ambition and large in stature. After ducking into a small restaurant with tapas and a cold beer, I ventured onto the city, ticking off buildings. Along the Rambla, the Palo Gul was topped with multicolored spirals. Casa Calve had a relatively toned-down, conventional facade. Casa Batlo, with its patios resembling masts and a facade with waves and columns. And La Pedrera, standing wavy, topped with snow cone-shaped structures on its roof and intricate ironwork for its balconies. Walking through the streets of each of those pieces of art showed how seriously the city takes its aesthetic. Art was everywhere. The windows, on top of buildings, even the people of the city living their daily lives had a different feel to them. The final stop on my personal gaudy tour was Park Guell. As the other sites were more individual works, the Park Guell was a complex of beauty. Brightly colored mosaics adorned structures which seemed straight from the mind of someone who saw the world differently. Palm trees, columns, dug out hallways with intricate designs, it was all incredible. In awe of what was surrounding me, I ventured out of the main complex and down a path leading to a rock formation with a large cross on its top. People were strewn all over the mound, but I made my way to the top and was rewarded with a panoramic view of the city. It was an incredible end to the gaudy tour which I couldn't have been more pleased with. Descending from the park well, I walked through the old town district once more, past the medieval walls, past the grand cathedrals, walked along the waterway with the street lights glowing, stood gazing at La Sagrada Familia for the last time and caught a movie at the English cinema. I spent the night in the hostel kitchen talking with a couple of my roommates, girls from Canada and California, and looking through the photos I had taken. There were many. Barcelona has so much to offer and I only experienced three days. Three years wouldn't have been enough time. The city was so full of life and beauty, simply walking from one street to the next elevated my mood and inspired me to do more. I was falling in love with Spain and my grasp of its native tongue was getting more robust. The country seemed to beckon adventure. The bus rocked its way down the arid land, heading toward the middle of Spain. We picked up passengers in the large city of Zaragoza and at 1.30 stopped in the middle of nowhere for lunch. The only building within sight was a market with a small gas station attached. The bus's inhabitants climbed off looking tired. We grabbed sandwiches and snacks and back on the bus. Another two hours and we were at the edge of Madrid in a large bus stop, far from the city center and my hostel. With a sigh, like so many sighs before, I started walking. Travel days were always a mixed bag of feelings. Just when I was getting comfortable with the previous city, I packed up my things, said my goodbyes to the acquaintances I had made, and ventured off into the unknown to do the same thing over again. It was equal parts exhilarating as it was nerve-wracking, but it was a kind of existence which forced me to live in the moment every day. The two-hour walk to the central section of Madrid gave me plenty of time to process all those emotions, once amid the tourists I ducked into a taco restaurant to recharge. As I was eating, a young couple came up to me and asked if I was a backpacker. I told them I was, and we began talking about the lifestyle, the things I had seen, and what lay ahead. They both were surprised at how quickly I was going through countries and vowed they would do a similar adventure in the near future. We laughed and parted ways. The first hours in a city the size of Madrid are always a whirlwind. Everything is in your face, fast paced and grand, plus there is no guarantee of a peaceful home base so there is a tension. Up until then I had stayed in more subpar hostels than great ones so I kept my expectations quite low but once I walked into the hostel I was to be staying at, all my anxiety quickly vanished. 
Unlike the hostel in Barcelona, the front desk attendants were extremely nice. The bar was in the lobby with bright lights and clean, with young people all around, talking, playing a guitar, and laughing. It felt warm and I was pleased. I found my room which was empty, took a fast shower, then headed down for a drink. After a beer, the bartender offered me a Tinto. I never heard of it, she was appalled and poured me one. Tinto, it turned out, is a carbonated beverage made of red wine and soda served on draft and is quite popular in Spain. I drank long from the cold, fizzy drink and was hooked. It was delicious. After two Tintos, I decided to call it quits for the evening and go back to my room for an early night. I was surprised to find a woman on the opposing bunk typing away, smiling at me as I entered. The woman was French, 36 years old and a journalist, an inexperienced one who was new to her work. We instantly connected and talked nonstop about writing, books, journalism, and our home countries. I asked her why she was in Madrid, and she explained she had been asked to write a story about a holy man, a kind of guru residing in the desert outside of Madrid. I was instantly intrigued and asked her for more information. In her broken English and thick French accent, she told me the story of how she had been working on the story for a few days, venturing out into the desert, meeting with the guru and his disciples, recording statements, and transcribing all of it. We walked out onto our room's patio and both leaned against the cool wrought iron bars in the warm evening as she continued her story. The guru and his people are not the ones who have been most strange to me. On the way back to the city this afternoon, I was standing there minding my own business when an old man, probably 80 years old, walked up to me and grabbed my breast. I was shocked. Before I could say anything, the women around me stood up quickly and used their purses to hit him and the bus driver stopped and the old man shuffled off. The French woman said this with a smirk on her face, not looking as offended as I thought she would have been. That is crazy, what happened after that? I said, not believing what I was hearing. The bus driver asked if I was okay and I said yes, and the woman told me he was an old pervert with mental problems that grabs women all the time. That's not okay, I said. Why don't they do something about him? And what would that do? He is not right in the head, it would be cruel to lock him away for that. The conversation shifted to other topics and before long we said our goodnights and went to bed. I laid awake that night thinking about the French journalist sleeping mere feet away from me and wishing her the best. Something about the way she told that story and reacted to being assaulted didn't sit well with me. The next morning I woke up, rolled over, and noticed a bed which she had occupied was empty and the streets were pristinely folded. One interesting person. Through the hostel I booked a walking tour of the city which introduced me to other travelers who shared interests similar to mine and showed us some major sights. Our group walked through medieval squares, past fortresses and elaborate cathedrals, and ended in a district full of shops and places to eat. A group of six of us got together and had traditional Spanish churros we dipped in melted chocolate. Back at the hostel, three guys and myself walked to an inner city park, Parque de El Retiro, and saw the Fountain of the Fallen Angel, a black stone portrayal of Lucifer, and walked to the main bullfighting ring of Madrid. After having spent all day exploring the city together, we raised glasses over a three-course meal the hostel was putting on. The drinks were included with the meal, so the twelve of us slammed drinks and ate, laughing and talking. We retired to our rooms to change, then met back in the lobby. Tonight was to be my first hostel-led pub crawl. Looking back, I'm not sure why I hadn't partaken in the numerous pub crawls I had been offered before Madrid. That hostel was different. I felt like I had made real connections with other travelers and felt like I would have fun. Our pub crawl leader was a young, twitchy Spaniard named Carlos. Loud and suave, he corralled the twelve of us together, which was a bit of a challenge since we had already been drinking, and we walked to our first bar. There were to be a total of four bars included in the package, a set amount of time at each, and a shot of tequila available upon entry into each establishment. The first bar is a club with strobe lights, expensive drinks, and people grinding on each other. Our group took the tequila shot and I drank about three sangrias. The second bar had a line to get in, and a few of the girls from our group had water thrown on them for residents in the flat above the bar. 
Designed in more of a labyrinth, this bar seemed sketchy and had way too expensive of drinks. Standing in the corner, I talked to some people, including an American guy who just got back from Tel Aviv about Jack Kerouac and writing for a bit. By the time the third bar rolled around, I was feeling buzzed and not enjoying the club experience. I never have, and told Carlos, our leader, I was going to head back to the hostel. Acting offended and a bit worried, he offered me some weed and told me he would pay for my drinks, but I told him no. I think he thought I was more drunk than I actually was, and he started pushing me towards the entrance. I ducked my shoulder and walked away from him, not liking the vibe. It was probably about 3 in the morning as I walked back to the hostel. Just drunk enough to enjoy the smells of the air and the coolness of the night, but not too far gone to have the spins. Back at the hostel, the lobby lights were dim. I pulled out my notebook and sat at the empty bar to jot down some notes. A good-looking woman walked behind the bar and asked if I wanted a drink. I had a tento and we spoke for a bit, not about travel, but normal things, mundane things. She apologized for the way the pub crawl leader acted and bought me another drink. Out of nowhere, a young girl from New York came up to me and asked if I wanted to watch a movie in the basement. I followed her down into the laundry area of the hostel where a few other late-night travelers were drinking and watching a movie. The conversation was incredible. People were so diverse. Before long, others from the pub crawl came in drunk with more booze. I finally called it quits around 5, stumbled up to my empty room and passed out. For some unknown reason, I woke up three hours later feeling refreshed and ventured down to have a much-needed breakfast. One of the guys I had taken the walking tour with and drank alongside at the pub crawl was already down eating with bloodshot eyes. We swapped stories from the night before and he asked me to go with him to Toledo, about an hour from Madrid in a few minutes. Without a thought to how tired I was or the amount of alcohol I had consumed, I agreed. We both downed our black coffees and boarded the shuttle van to Toledo. The van settled on a hill overlooking the medieval city of Toledo with its cathedrals and square fortress looming large over the red roofs. Surrounding the city was the same arid land of central Spain I had grown accustomed to, which made the Blue River, the Tagus, winding around the city that much more stark. We all took panoramic photos and were driven down to the entrance of Toledo next to the large fortress. Luke, the late 30s Nova Scotian I had met on the walking tour and party with the night before, and I had met a 19-year-old Irish guy named Zach on the way over. The three of us clicked and we decided to explore together. It wasn't since Reed left back in Denmark that I had truly explored with anybody else. Along the way, there had been a few fair-weather travelers I associated with, but Luke and Zach had the same interests as I did, plus they were relaxed and easygoing. Two great qualities and travel companions. We walked along the cobblestone streets under the flags of the ancients, passed a couple grand cathedrals and walked in one, and ultimately ventured to the edges of the old town walls. It was a beautiful city, but after a couple of hours, the events of the previous night began to take its hold on our energy levels, so we did what any good traveler does in a time of need, found a bar. Over pizza and beer, tucked away in a cobblestone alley, the three of us talked about all manner of things. Loves had and loves lost, travel, home life, work and school, and the inn left the restaurant with each of us ensuring we would have a place to stay in the Pacific Northwest, Nova Scotia, and the coast of Ireland. After another zigzag across Toledo, we found our shuttle and traveled back to Madrid. It was nearly dusk, so the three of us found a small bar serving tapas on the bustling streets near the central district and found one of the art museums, Reina Sofia, was dropping their entrance fee for the evening. The beers went down smooth and we stood in line to get in the Grand Museum with hundreds of others, talking to those in line like it was an extension of our hostel. Once in, we grabbed a map and took off in all directions. The Reina Sofia was the first large art museum I had partaken in through the entirety of my drifting through Europe and was not let down. Filled with all mediums and movements of Spanish art, the museum was large and well-layered. We saw some of my favorite artists, Monray, Dali, and early work from Picasso. As we continued through work after work, the Picasso area seemed to have a large congregation of people. 
After more investigation, it was due to the Guernica, his mesmerizing painting while in his blue period. We must have spent three hours in the museum before we walked out into the warm Spanish air. Back to the hostel we went, looking forward to our trip the following day to a different city. Luke and I dropped Zach off at his hostel, not far from ours, stopped into a great restaurant for kebabs, then back to our hostel for a tento. After being awake for 21 hours, I was zonked and made my way to my room. It was empty and my imagination ran off with thoughts of my French roommate and her guru in the deserts of Spain. In the same way as the previous day, I woke and went down to the lobby to find Luke hunched over a bowl of oatmeal with black coffee steaming. It turned out he had gone to the clubs after leaving me and had stayed up even later than before. Unfortunately for him, our tickets were already purchased. We met Zach in the train station, boarded a bus, and were off to Segovia. With cloudless blue skies guiding our exploration, we bounded through the ancient streets of Segovia with its earth-toned buildings until we found a castle, Alcazar de Segovia, fit for a fantasy. Perched on the edge of the city, looking out to the arid countryside outside the city walls was a huge, blocky, gothic turreted castle. After a moment to comprehend how fitting the castle was within those ancient city walls, we paid the fee and entered. I had never been inside a proper castle's innards before, and it was everything I had ever dreamed. Once inside the castle, a courtyard opened revealing a square of rooms, some with swords hanging in a cross on the walls with suit of armors and shields. Others housed gigantic wooden dining tables with goblets and animal skins on the wall. We climbed to the top of John's Tower, ascending the tight, narrow, stiff staircase until we were looking over the city and countryside. The three of us walked along every cobble of that castle, taking in as much as we could. While on top of the tower, we used our map to circle where we wanted to venture to next. Bigger than it seemed, Segovia had many alleys and squares not outright visible even from as high a point as the castle's tower. Cathedrals were magnificent, people cruising across their squares laughing and enjoying the blue skies. After crossing most of the map sites off, we came to the Roman aqueducts and were caught off guard. Towering at a hundred feet tall at its highest point, the aqueducts were composed of giant gray stones assembled with the greatest technology the time had to offer. Climbing to a point equal to the top of the aqueducts, we stood admiring the structure as it ran along the city, reflecting within residential windows and being admired by a diverse array of people. Luke, Zach, and I separated a bit and spent some time reflecting on what we were seeing. I was grateful to have the two of them to talk about what I was seeing, to have someone to bounce ideas off, and get different opinions on things I had never seen before and which arose questions never posed in my head. We took our time getting back to the bus station, basking in the beauty all around us and knowing once we returned to Madrid, we'd be parting ways with a high probability of never seeing each other again. In some ways it was sad, but in others, it gave a kind of beauty to the short friendships which we have no choice to be sudden, bright, and ultimately die out as quickly as they began. The hostel bar that last night in Madrid was a chaotic mess in the best possible way. As the universe sometimes does, timing was coincidental, and most of the people I had made friends with were all leaving on other journeys. We toasted to the clubs and the sights we had seen. We toasted to the journeys which had guided us all to that beautiful hostel in Madrid and smiled with twinkles in our eyes at what lay ahead of each of us. The tenta was pouring into the late that evening. We all said our goodbyes and walked up into our rooms. The bus arrived at Pamplona around 6 in the evening and, as usual, I had no idea where I was going. In great contrast to the cities I had been in, Pamplona was much more relaxed, even tranquil in the warm evening air. Before long, I arrived in my hostel, was shown around, offered to have laundry done, walked out and onto the terrace overlooking a quiet street and was back out the door. In almost all the previous cities, I arrived with little to no planning and relied on getting lost to show me the way. Pamplona was different due to one name. Ernest Hemingway. 
The entire reason Pamplona was on my map was because of the famed writer in his first novel, The Sun Also Rises, written in 1926 when Hemingway was 27 years old. The book revolves around a group of young people who travel to the city for the San Fermin Festival and indulge in bullfighting and ultimately come to realize the flaws of their way of life. Because of that book, Pamplona was like a kind of literary pilgrimage, but fascinated by the book. Within a few short minutes of walking, I found myself in the middle of the Plaza del Castillo, the main square of the old town district lying on all four corners with hotels and other buildings looking like they hadn't changed since the 20s. There I found a bookstore, I hunted down a copy of the book, found a dingy bar, ordered a tall beer, and sat in the quarter reading Fiesta, The Sun Also Rises. In Spain, the title has Fiesta added to it. After a couple of beers and a few dozen pages read, I walked around the old town for a bit, enjoying the buzz from the beer and how it enhanced the warm night's air and found my way back to the hostel. One of the hostel's workers was a guy about my age with a messy beard, thick-rimmed glasses, and a laid-back vibe who I instantly began speaking to. We exchanged the usual pleasantries of hostel life, but soon transitioned into writing. The two of us talked for some time out on the terrace about writers, writing styles, and what kind of books we wanted to write in the future. The hours slipped by and we made our way into the common room to find three Danish guys and two girls staring at the television with big eyes and open mouths. It was November 13th, 2015, and that night in Paris, terrorists killed over 130 people. We all gazed stupidly at the images on the screen, the bodies being wheeled out on stretchers, sounds of gunshots, and words running across the screen in Spanish. The guys from Denmark were just beginning the Camino de Santiago, and the two girls just arrived from France, and my next stop was the south of France. Between the long, silent stares of the television, we talked quickly about how sorry we felt for those who lost their lives, and speculated at how it would affect our individual movement through the European Union. We talked until 3 that morning about our loved ones back home and how evil in the world can rear its mutilated head in the most nonsensical ways. The next morning, I went back to sitting in front of the same television screen, looking at the state of the countries within the EU. France had declared a kind of border freeze, and I heard some different sources they were not allowing anyone to enter or leave France for the next day or two. Selfishly, I was worried because France was my next stop. I was to be in Toulouse the following day. Worried, I went down to the bus station and bought a ticket, which they sold me. I was surprised, but tucked the ticket in my pack, wondering if they would void it the next day. Trying to take my mind off the terrorist attacks only hours away, I walked to the square from the night before and ate at the Café Aronia. Its black and white checkered tile floors and vintage decor couldn't have been much different than how the restaurant looked back in the 20s when Hemingway and his friends drank too much just outside. I spent the day tracing the path of the running of the bulls, walking from the starting stables to the bull ring not too far away, stood outside the beautiful churches which seemed too big for a town of that size, walked around La Citadella with its 16th century walls in the shape of a pentagon, and people watched the town hall, Ayuntamiento with its colorful flags with wooden fences around it to keep the bulls from straying off their path to slaughter. I wandered all over that wondrous town. It felt as if I was living there, walking here and there with a book under one arm, ducking into small shops and cafes, drinking with the locals at the bar, reading my book amidst wandering tourists. The city was welcoming and warm, a place where a traveler feels like they can assimilate and belong. Those two and a half days in Pamplona seemed to go so fast. The final morning I walked once more across a large square, ate breakfast at the Café Arunia, and made my way to the bus depot, nervously waiting to see if they would accept my ticket into France, amid the violence and uncertainty which had cast a shadow over a country known for its bright lights. Without ceremony, the bus driver glanced quickly to my passport, took my ticket, and sat down on the nice coach bound for Toulouse. With headphones in and my shoulder bouncing gently against the window, we passed the imaginary line between Spain and France. 
No one gave us a second look as we traveled north. In a few days I would be in Paris. The French countryside put me at ease. End of chapter.